I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Previously on Mary and Bill. Yeah, there's dead people here, dead bodies. The four of us, I remember huddling and hugging and crying, trying to imagine, but not wanting to, what happened. Why was this person willing to hurt these other people? So I don't care whether that person ends up in jail or whatever. Uh, I would just like that to be resolved. Does that make sense? A few days after I met with the Columbus police at the coffee shop and they tried to get me to take them to my parents' house, I emailed Detective Dana Kroom to say that my mom and dad were willing to talk to them and asked when would be a good time to meet up. Detective Kroom surprised me with his response. Thanks for getting back with me. Since we talked, we have reviewed the file a little bit and do have a good person of interest. I would like to go up to Cleveland and talk with your parents. I would like to see how much they remember, and I may be showing them some pictures. A good person of interest. I was not expecting that, especially since the wording of Detective Kroom's email made it sound like that person of interest had surfaced pretty easily from just, quote, reviewing the case file a little bit. Had this person simply been hiding in plain sight all these years, waiting for someone to take a fresh look at the file? I told myself, I'd be able to ask the police that question, and hopefully a lot more, when they came to Cleveland to interview my parents. On this episode of Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, pushing further into a 53-year-old crime that I now knew police believed could still be solved, and beginning to reconstruct the details of the case from primary documents in a visit to the crime scene itself. Could there have been a bathroom? in the front part of the house at some point? No. No, and I just know that because of plumbing. Okay. And lining up the plumbing. Episode two, everybody isn't going to France. While I awaited the police's visit to my parents, another priority was to get in touch with Bill's younger sister and only sibling, Pat Sproat Lolinger. Pat spoke to me by phone from the Philadelphia suburb where she lives, not far from where she and Bill grew up. Can you tell me about your childhood with Bill and where you grew up? Well, we grew up in a little town um, just uh, not far from here, not far from Springfield in Havertown. And it was a, you know, pretty much middle class, you know, neighborhood where, you know, you were outside all the time and, you know, we, we had a nice house and... And um, but we we were we were just, you know, middle class people. Pat is a retired health and phys ed teacher. I knew from seeing photos of her on social media that she had short blonde hair, liked to wear V-neck sweaters with polo shirts. And though she and Bill were not twins, she did look a lot like him with the same prominent eyebrows and one of those smiles that turns downward at the corners. Even long distance, I immediately felt comfortable talking to her. She had a relaxed, warm style of communicating. She said she welcomed my looking into the case, and maybe as much as that, 
the chance to talk about the older brother she clearly loved and looked up to. And what was Bill like as a person? Bill was very, very smart, a great student, and he was an average athlete, but, you know, played all the sports. He, 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 was, he was actually a pretty gentle kind of guy. You know, he, if, if, there was, if there was a fight, he was the one in the background. He wasn't in it. You know, even growing up, going through grade school, we went to a Catholic school there, Sacred Heart. He was like all the, the nuns loved him because he was smart. Catholicism. As with Mary, it was a central part of Bill's upbringing. And both Mary and Bill stayed committed Catholics up until the time they died. It was as an undergrad at Xavier University outside Cincinnati, Pat said, that Bill fell in love with French culture and language, especially after he spent the summer of 1967 studying in Paris, in the same program that Mary would attend the following summer. And he came back, and all of a sudden, you know, now here we are in Havertown, everybody's having wine because Bill came back with you know, this whole culture that you're supposed to be drinking wine at dinner. And, um, you know, that that isn't what people in Havertown did back then. Pat said he even lectured his parents a bit after that trip, said they needed to travel more, see the world, which prompted his father, a straight-talking guy who works for a trucking company, to sit his budding Francophile son down for a reality check. I, I do remember my father sitting him down, you know, and telling him, don't forget your roots kind of thing. Um, you know, that, okay, this is for you, and, you know, we're buying into what you are doing, but, you know, you make sure you remember where you came from kind of thing. So, you know, and then, and then, you know, I think he got off his high horse, like, oh, you know, everybody should be going to France. Well, you know, no, everybody isn't going to France. Bill eventually chose French as his major at Xavier and was an academic star. He made the dean's list all four years and graduated magna cum laude in 1969. It was the year before, 1968, that Bill first met Mary through a mutual friend. We'll hear more about that meeting later. But Pat says for the first year or so, she and her parents didn't hear much about his new girlfriend until shortly before he died. He mentioned uh, when he was home at Christmas um, that you know, he he was seeing somebody. Um, and then um, we, we all went back to school. By that time, Bill was in his first semester of graduate school at Ohio State University, where he was rooming with his childhood friend, Tom McGuigan. Then, the Sunday before his murder, he called home. I was home, and he called. It was like a Sunday kind of thing that you called once a week back then. And... Um, and he, and so I kiddingly said, oh, you know, how's your girlfriend? Like, that's the kind of stuff that I, that, that was annoying to him, you know. But of course, you know, I'm 20 years old. I want to know what's going on here. And, um, you know, that he, he said, yeah, things were, I mean, he was, he was actually chatty about, about her. And I, you know, I do remember that very clearly, um, that, he he was planning to see her. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm still seeing her. And he said, yeah, I'm going to see her on the weekend. Pat said the fact that her very private brother was talking so openly about Mary showed her how serious they were getting. She was looking forward to hearing more as time went on. But that phone conversation turned out to be the last time Pat ever talked to her brother. The next weekend, on the afternoon of Saturday, February 28, 1970, she got a call in her dorm at Westchester University in Chester County, Pennsylvania. You know, we had hallway phones. You didn't have a phone in your room at that point. 
the phone rang and you know when one of the girls answered it and told me it was for me and I went out in the hallway and it was it was my dad and and uh, my dad said you know I, I want you to come right home and I said well we were just there I you know what do I have to come home for and he said well you know we just need you to come home and of course you know being a stubborn 20 year old I just kept you know pushing like why I had to come home and and he had to tell me on the on the phone and um you know I I I always have felt bad about that A friend drove Pat home where her parents were sitting in the living room in shock The next few days were a blur of funeral arrangements with little time to process the horror of what had happened Then came the funerals themselves Pat traveled to Portsmouth, Ohio, Mary's hometown, for her funeral. The wake beforehand was the first time Pat had ever seen anything so much as a photograph of Mary. Now she was looking into her brother's girlfriend's open casket. I remember honestly standing there crying, just, you know, you know how you just have a memory that is is just kind of emblazoned, you know, in your you know, you just can't ever get it out of your head so senseless, you know, that You know, here's this young person just gone. Pat repeated what Martha had told me, that her parents were worried Mary's family might have blamed Bill for not protecting Mary. But she said the Petries welcomed them with open arms. There was no sense that anyone but the killer was responsible for what had happened. Bill's funeral was a few days later. You know, and people say, oh, I, I can only imagine what you're going through. You're like, no, back then, no. Pat said the two families endured the grief partly by befriending each other. That part of it was uh, probably what got both of the families through it all. You know, that they had each other and it wasn't, you know, this mystery person, you know, that you you just talked about. I mean, you know, we we actually went to Portsmouth to to meet them, you know, my parents and I the next summer. And, um, you know, and that turned out t- to be a good thing, you know, that so we so we all did have a nice connection. Pat and her dad went back to school and work, respectively, and her mom got her first ever job, too, working in a local department store. It was the best thing that ever happened to her, Pat said, because the new friends and busyness of work kept her from grieving full time. For a while, Pat tried to fill the void left by her brother's murder. I tried to be a son and a daughter. You you can't be, you know. You have to be who you are, you know. Was I the academic wizard? No. You know, and, you know, the accolades and all that kind of stuff, you know. But, you know, once, once I came to accept that that was, you know, it was okay for me to just be me and, you know, he that's he that's who he was but you know I'm I'm not that person so but I I struggled with that in the beginning I told Pat I related to a lot of what she was saying because I lost my own sister and only sibling at a young age not to murder but a sudden brain hemorrhage when she was 27 and I was 30 trying to be two people at once I did that too and I also stumble over my words when new people I meet innocently ask if I have siblings. You know, because they always say, well, who's your brother? Who's your sister? Well, you know, I don't have one. How come you don't have one? Pat said she's experiencing the stumbling all over again now that she has four grandkids. 
They're just starting to get to the ages where they're curious about what happened to the great uncle they know only from old photographs. In terms of the investigation, Pat said neither she nor her parents ever heard much from the Columbus police or Ohio State. The one thing she did remember being asked about, beyond the obvious, did Bill have any enemies, to which her answer was no, was a letter she'd written to Bill shortly before his death. It had been found torn up in a wastebasket inside his apartment. She'd written it mostly to let him know she'd given their parents $50 toward a trip to Paris that they were planning in a few months. Turned out Bill's encouragement to get out and see the world had worked. And, you know, I just wanted him, when they said thank you, to act like he even knew, <laughs> knew what was happening. And the police, you know, wanted, wanted to know what this $50 was in reference to. The letter was in fragments, and the pieces of paper the police found referenced $50 without much context. I asked Pat if she found it strange that Bill would have gone to the trouble to rip it up rather than just tossing it. She said no. He wasn't terribly sentimental about stuff, so that was no surprise that it was in a trash can. Still, the fact that the police were interested in a letter mentioning cash, it lets me know that they were considering money as a potential motive in the crime. And then I know you told me earlier that after that, you never heard anything more from them for years. Do you think the police should have kept more in touch with you? Or were you okay with that? You know, the the police department, they, they want to solve these cases. So it's not that they just kind of threw the case into the corner. Um, do I think Ohio State could have been more proactive and, and you know, being more in, in touch with my parents? Yes. But, you know, maybe maybe that just didn't happen back then either, where today we're a much more communicative society than back then. So I, I probably don't feel that it's fair for me to judge what they did because, truthfully, I don't know what they did. She said she does sometimes think her family could have done more back when the case was still fresh, like hire a private investigator. But you know what, back then, honestly, my family didn't have the money to hire you know, lawyers out there and, and private investigators. And it was just you trusted your the, the police department to take care of everything. And, you know, oh, surely, we're, you know, they, oh, we'll find who did this. That was pretty much how Bill's death remained in her mind. A huge, horrible question mark. Until about 10 years ago, when she reached out to the Columbus police at the encouragement of friends to see where the case stood. That would have been a few years after Mary's sister Martha last talked to the police and heard about that DNA that was submitted to the state database. The story that I got was that they definitely had Bill's DNA, definitely had Mary's DNA, and they have a third DNA that they didn't know who it was. From there, Pat let the case fade again into the background, where it stayed until I contacted her. Just like Martha, Pat still wants answers. Was it drug-related? Was it connected to Charles Manson? I mean, you know, there's all those theories that were going on back then. Whether it was one person or more than one person, you know, there, there, was, a, there was a lot of work that went on to, to, to doing this to these two. You know, and, and why would you take that much time to punish two people, and especially if you didn't know them, if it was a random act? Like, take their money. I, I'm telling you, Bill would have handed his wallet over. He... Uh, I, I don't think he would have fought at all, and, and yet I, I hope he fought for her. But she said, while those questions still haunt her, she's also made a kind of peace with them. 
you know what, uh, Justin, honestly, you know, if I go to my grave, you know, my mother and father did not knowing, that's okay too. In the beginning, I, I probably, you know, would have wanted a, an execution like right on the street, you know. And again, that was just being an angry 20-year-old. Because like, w- w- what would I want to see happen to somebody at this point? You know, would I, would I want them to be condemned to, to uh, their, the rest of their life in jail? Well, at this point, what's that going to do? It's not going to make me rest any easier. It just would be like, oh, that's why. Meanwhile, as I waited to hear back from the Columbus police about their visit to my parents, I decided to put together the most thorough and accurate accounting of what happened the night of February 27, 1970, that I could. That's what you're going to hear in this next section, the timeline of that night and the few days afterwards. A warning, the facts of this case are disturbing on their face. If you just want to hear about my investigation, you may want to skip to the next episode. I'm going to present this information in two parts. I'll start with what I know from the primary documents that I'd accessed in the case. That includes the original summary police reports that the detectives gave me when I first met them, but also the coroner's reports, which by this time I'd received back in response to my public records request. Then I'll talk about what the newspapers reported at that time. In other words, you're going to hear the highest quality information first, as recorded by actual eyewitnesses in 1970, before I add in the second-hand stuff. So, as I said in the last episode, the summary police reports from 1970 were very brief. There was one each for both Mary and Bill, and they were both written on Saturday, February 28th at 1 p.m., 35 minutes after the murders were reported by Bill's roommate. Here's the full summary police report for Bill Sprout, read by one of my colleagues. Mr. Sprout's body was found by his roommate, one Tom McGuigan, male, white, 22, at 12.25 p.m. The body was in the bathroom, tied, face down, his throat had been cut. Mr. McGuigan was the last person to see the subject alive. This was at about 6 p.m., February 27th. Mr. McGuigan had left the apartment at this time and states he spent the night at 180 East 13th with some girls and a Mr. Philip Glanville. There's that jarring mention of my dad. Residents of the apartment house were questioned. Nobody saw or heard anything unusual. Body was taken to the morgue by 104. I assume that means 104 p.m. Saturday. And pronounced by Dr. Adrian at 2 p.m. Homicide was on the scene. Dr. William Adrian was the deputy coroner of Franklin County at that time. The weapon or tool used is listed as a, quote, sharp instrument, and the method of attack is listed as, quote, tied, comma, stabbed. The time of occurrence is listed as 6 p.m. to 12.25 p.m., meaning between 6 p.m. Friday when Tom left the apartment and 12.25 p.m. Saturday when Tom returned. The police report for Mary Petrie was written at the same time as Bill's. Here it is, again, read by a colleague. Miss Petrie's body was found by a Mr. Tom McGuigan, male, white, 22, at 12.25 p.m. Her body was in the bedroom on the bed. She had been hit in the head and stabbed. She was nude from the waist down. It is unknown who saw her alive last. 
Mr. McGuigan, who lives at 178 West 8th and is a roommate of Mr. Sprout, who was also killed in this apartment, said that Miss Petrie had called at about 5.15 p.m. to say she was taking a cab from Grove City, that's a Columbus suburb southwest of downtown, and was coming to the apartment. Mr. McGuigan said he left the apartment at about 6 p.m. and she was not there yet. Nobody saw or heard anything unusual. Body was taken to the morgue by 101, pronounced by Dr. Adrian at 2 p.m. Homicide was on the scene. As with Bill, the weapon or tool used is listed as, quote, a sharp instrument, but the method of attack is listed as beaten, comma, stabbed, instead of tied, comma, stabbed. Also, like with Bill, the time of occurrence is listed as between 6 p.m. Friday and 12.25 p.m. Saturday. I asked my editor, Mike McIntyre, and producer, Mary Fecto, to discuss the details of the report with me. Yeah, and I, I think the way that both the police reports are written is so, the way it has to be written is devoid of any kind of emotion, but it's so sad at the same time. And all you can do is think about, you know, what these words mean in terms of what they went through and how, you know, the language used is so plain, but it's so devastating what they're describing. Yeah. I mentioned to Mary and Mike that the fact that no other residents heard anything struck me as odd. I mean, it's not a huge apartment house. There's only four units, and this is a Friday night. So I guess, you know, probably everyone was out. But it's still like you're going to commit a crime like that in a setting where other people could potentially walk in at any moment. Right. Right? That's that's really – that was really surprising when I read that, that nobody saw or heard anything. And it makes me wonder what time it actually happened. You know, like if could it have been like – I don't know, a time where people were, you know, noisy enough to block out any noise or maybe when people were just dead asleep. And I, I can't imagine that. I think no one was there. It couldn't have been that anyone could be there because it, you can't imagine this is something that could have been a, a you know, sort of a, a stealthy murder of two people. This is something to me that sounds like it played out over a long time and it couldn't have been quiet. So it ha- to me, it had to be no one in a four-unit apartment could have been there or else they were just ignoring what they were hearing. Mike's referring to the way they were murdered, which was particularly brutal. You heard some of the details in the first episode and we'll hear more in the next one when we talk in detail about the coroner's reports. Well, but like how would such a person know that <laughs> no one's around and know right. it's the perfect time to commit a crime? Makes me wonder who did this even more because it's feels like it would have had to have been someone who may have been there before and may have known something about, you know, the habits of the people in the apartment or something. All right. Is it okay to leave my stuff in here? Absolutely. I'm going to lock it, yeah. I need to get a better picture of where this all happened I needed to make the two-hour trip to 178 West 8th Avenue in Columbus. That's the house where the murders happened. The property manager, Rachel Mayfield, agrees to meet me and give me a tour of Bill's apartment. She's well aware of the building's history and says she's always hoped the murders would be solved. Okay. Anything we go, we ask from this point where it just be about bedrooms and... Okay. It's a stealth operation. Rachel is going to tell the students who live here now that we're here to make a video of the place for the leasing company's website. She doesn't want to freak the current tenants out by talking about a double homicide while they study for exams. 
As we walk up to the front door, I see that the three-story house looks almost exactly like it did in newspaper photos from 1970. The color of the siding is kind of a brownish gray now, not white, but otherwise it's unchanged. Nondescript, plain, with a tiny front porch and a patch of grass out front. It sounds obvious to say, but there's no visible indication that terrible murders occurred here more than 50 years ago. Shouldn't there be something? A dark cloud hanging over the roof? A ghostly face in the window? But no, it's just a house. No different from the dozens of other student houses all around it. So this is the common area. Okay. And that goes to unit A, which is all first floor. There's no second floor of that unit. Okay. We walk in through the front door, which, according to news reports from the time, is where the cab driver dropped Mary off. Right away, we're facing a steep, wooden banistered staircase, dating back to when the house was first built in 1901. This staircase leads to the second floor, and what was in 1970, apartment C. That was Bill's apartment. The students let us in, and we walk into a corridor that faces a giant kitchen. A few young people sit at a large dining table, books sprawled out in front of them. I wonder, is this the room where my mom had dinner with Bill all those years ago, when she noticed the bowling ball that held his and Tom's umbrellas and was later reported to be one of the murder weapons? We'll go back here and then come in here last. Does that work? Yeah. Okay. Are anybody in these two? No. Okay. News reports said that Bill's bedroom, the one where Mary was found, faced the street. So Rachel leads me to the front of the house. There are two bedrooms up here, and they're nearly identical. I can't tell from police and news reports which of these two was the one where Mary was found. It could have been either. Okay, so we're standing in a bedroom that's at the front of the house. So it is the southeast corner of the... Southeast corner. The first bedroom we're in is small, barely wide enough for the current tenant's double bed. Aside from two windows facing the street, the only feature is two small side-by-side closets... That were at some point, and I don't know when the timing of this, there was a fireplace here, which you can see behind this wall. A polished wood mantle and brickwork peek out from behind the closet door. So then we'll go in this one. We walk across the hall to the other bedroom, a bit wider than the first, and with a more traditional corner closet. And then we'll go in the kitchen area, and then that has a bathroom in the back, and then we should be finished. Okay. Off the big kitchen where we first walked in, Rachel shows me a small bathroom. And then there's one more bath right here. Okay. I can see the back of the next-door neighbor's house. There's a shower and a toilet. So that's everything. Yes, that's everything. we see everything? Yes, we did. Okay. We thank the students and head back to Rachel's car to debrief. Wow. Okay, deep breath. Wow. That was intense to see that after thinking about it for so long. Trying to picture it. It's hard to picture when someone's trying to explain it to you. Yeah. How do you feel going in there? I feel sad when I go in there. It makes me sad to know what happened. It makes me yeah. sad that someone lost their life and they weren't doing anything wrong and they were. it was violent. It's, it's just really sad. I mean, yeah. it's really sad. That sadness is something I experienced too, especially in the two bedrooms. 
A sadness so present that both rooms felt heavy with it. An artifact, my logical mind knows, of having knowledge of what happened there. Still, it stays with me as I sit in the car with Rachel, processing. One thing that strikes me, having seen the apartment, is how far apart Mary and Bill would have been when they were found. Mary was found in one of the bedrooms, but Bill was found in the bathroom. The bathroom is halfway back in the building, behind a wall and across a big kitchen from the bedrooms. Could there have been a bathroom in the front part of the house at some point? No. No, and I just know that because of plumbing. Okay. And lining up the plumbing. There's no plumbing on the front of the house. Aside from how far apart Bill's and Mary's bodies were found, my other big takeaway from having visited the crime scene is that this building has a ton of access points. There's the front door, of course, where Mary would have entered and where I did too. But there are also three different entry doors on the back of the building, one on each level, reached by an enclosed exterior staircase. Those entries are locked and well-secured now, but that was not the case in the early 1970s. Let me tell you the only thing I do remember about this thing. It was just a British department, and, you know, I was 20 years old at the time. Cool thing about old phone books, at least ones from Columbus in 1970, they're cross-referenced by address. That's how I found Joe Gressel. He was an Ohio State undergrad in 1970 and moved into the building's ground floor apartment a couple months after the murders. And they didn't tell me that there was a murder in the building or anything like that. It was just one available, it was reasonable and all that. He found out about the murder soon enough though, because a couple neighbors told him. He says despite what had happened, the building's security was pretty lax. He'd often come home to find the door to that back stairway hanging open. And a reporter for the Ohio State Lantern in 1970 was able to open the front door and walk right in just a few days after the murders occurred. The reporter also described two of the three light bulbs in the vestibule and in the stairway leading up to Bill's apartment as being burned out. All of that, the darkness, the lack of security, means the murders could easily have been crimes of opportunity. A stranger lurking around who maybe saw Mary entering, and an easy chance to follow her, unchecked and unnoticed. But other forensic evidence in the case points toward what others suspect, including Martha, Mary's sister, that the perpetrator was known to Mary and Bill. These are complex homicides. They very much appear to be sexually motivated. Different modalities of injury suggest a a more protracted interaction. On the next episode, we'll go through the coroner and autopsy reports from the case and continue building out the timeline of what happened that night, including hearing from that Ohio State Lantern reporter who was at the scene in 1970. One of the things that I remember is people, you know, sort of smoking all over the crime scene. (laughs) And now you see all these, you know, sort of sort of gloves and hazmat suits. And then it was just, you know, there was there was no crime scene secured, really, or or no, no real perimeter, I guess, what I was talking about. Plus, my parents get that visit from the Columbus police without me. They said that what they say, they're close to solving it. That's what they said? That they were close. 
That's next time on Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. If you have information about the murders of Bill Sprout or Mary Petrie, please contact the Columbus Police Homicide Case Review Unit at 614-645-4036 or get in touch with me via our website, ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill. Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, is an IdeaStream public media podcast in partnership with the Ohio Newsroom. It's reported and written by me, Justin Glanville, with production and sound design by John Nungesser. Our editors are Mike McIntyre and Natalie Pillsbury. Our digital team is Annie Wu and Ryan Lowe, with graphic design and art by Lauren Green. Music is by Beyonce, Ketza, TKP, Montplaisir, Chad Crouch, and Crowinder. Marketing is by Matt Ehrman, Pat Miller, Matt Crow, and Anna Garvin, with support from Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks to Marlene Harris-Taylor, Mark Rosenberger, and Claire Roth. For photos, a timeline of this case, and a document library, visit our website at ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill. Bill.